You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. Go ahead and tell someone the title of my sermon this morning, A Passover Feast, A Passover Feast. Just a couple of things before we get into the word this morning. Again, right after this service, right? I believe we're going to start around 1 o'clock, is it? Uh, we're going to do the evangelism workshop. And so if you're interested in that, please come out to that. We've got, some, we got a lot of good things uh, in store for that. And uh, again, our church, part of our church is that we want to be a, a disciple-making church. We want to be an evangelistic church. And so uh, we want to instill that culture into our congregation. And so if you have um, a desire to share the gospel to a friend or a loved one that's an unbeliever, or even this coming summer jam picnic, you have somebody that you're bringing that isn't a Christian, I think this is a great opportunity for you to come and learn and see some practical ways to share the gospel to your friends and loved ones, um, and even discuss some of the struggles in, in entailed that comes with that. Now, in addition to that, of course, prayer service is tomorrow, and so please, please, please make time for that. Again, we want to be a praying church that's part of the culture of Plus Life. There's a lot of things that we want to lift up, and specifically tomorrow we want to lift up the Summer Jam Picnic because, again, we do want it to be an evangelistic event, and we are trying to uh, reach the loss with this, this, this Summer Jam Picnic. So please make time for that and, and join us in prayer. By the way, last prayer, last prayer service that we had a couple months ago, I'm telling you, it was amazing. It was great. You, you, had, you, you have to be there, right? It, it felt like... Like the old days back when we were in the basement, right, and we were still together there, and, and it just, it was a good time of worship and prayer. So please come out for that. Now, this morning, as we continue our study in the Gospel of John, we, as we just read, we're going back to this landmark miracle in Jesus' earthly ministry, the feeding of the five and as we mentioned, this miracle, in comparison to the other miracles that Jesus uh, performs in his earthly ministry, has by far the, the largest scope when it comes to the amount of people it impacts or it involves. Again, Jesus feeds 5,000 men. That's not including the women and children. And remember, if you include them in the total, the, 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 that, the number actually goes up to f- between 15,000 to 20,000 people in that single feeding. As we'll see, this miracle and the events that follow is a crucial turning point in Jesus' earthly ministry, hence why all four Gospels record it. Now, last week we looked at sort of the overall message or the overall theme that that this miracle tries to communicate in all four Gospels, the invitation from Jesus to his disciples to Give to care for those who are in need, just as he cared for them. Jesus desired his disciples and us to care for them as well. The responsibility to take care of our neighbor, to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Now, this week, I want us to look at John's specific viewpoint on this miracle. Each gospel, where uh, each gospel writer approaches the ministry of Christ from a very specific perspective, and remember what John's perspective is on his gospel, why he's writing his gospel, John chapter twenty, verse thirty-one. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. 
That's the purpose for John's entire gospel, why we're even looking at it, right? John is writing from an evangelistic perspective. He's writing so that unbelievers would read his gospel and be convinced that Jesus is truly the Messiah and the Son of God, and that by believing in him, they would have eternal life. This is John's specific perspective throughout his gospel, and as we'll see, when, even when it comes to this miracle, John writes it with a specific intention of convincing his readers of this truth, of believing in Christ. Now, beyond our passage this morning, as we unpack the rest of chapter 6 in the next couple of weeks, there's, there's a couple of things that we're going to notice as we go through it. First of all, this entire chapter is an overarching narrative, each scene building on top of the other, right? Just sim- similar to how chapter 5 was, right? It actually, actually flows similar to chapter 5, where first and foremost, there is a miracle that takes place. The, the religious leaders or the people question Jesus about it. Jesus gives his answer. He, 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 he gives his identity as the Son of God. Then at the very end, the people reject Jesus. And this chapter, chapter 6, follows a similar pattern as that. So keep that in mind. Secondly, this entire narrative of chapter 6 follows very closely to the story of the Israelites in Egypt, or even the exodus from Egypt, from crossing the Red Sea, from wandering in the wilderness, being given the word of the, of the Lord with, with, at the end of the day, and at the end of that story, only having a few faithful remaining uh, in that story. So lots of Old Testament and Jewish references in this, this single chapter of John. John's target audience, again, in this chapter is, is really the Jews that he's speaking to, or at least that Jesus is addressing in this passage. Now, thirdly, as we go through this entire chapter, we have to see that John begins to reveal the heart of the Savior. We saw, we saw a glimpse of that already in the previous chapter, in chapter 5, and even sprinkled throughout the previous chapters. But if you remember, the reason why in chapter 5, Jesus was arguing or, or discussing these things with uh, the Pharisees there was because he, in, in chapter 5, verse 34, he says, I say these things so that you may be saved. That's a glimpse at the heart of the Savior. Christ desired even his enemies, the Pharisees, to come to faith, to be saved as well. And so keep that in mind, because as we go from this point towards the end of John chapter 6 and the chapters after that, we'll start to see more and more of Christ's heart, of Christ's heart for the sinner, for the lost. And that's very intentional because that culminates to the high priestly prayer towards the end, right before Jesus is crucified. If there's anybody, if there's any writer in the New Testament that talks most about the love of God, it's John the Apostle. And we see that a lot even throughout his letters later on, right? The idea that we get that God is love is from the Apostle John. So he's going to start talking more and more about that. He's going to start, he, he, he sort of dealt with all the fundamental, the theological truths at the beginning of his book. And now he's getting to the heart, the reasoning behind it all, the heart of Christ. So keep that in mind as we go through this chapter. And again, uh, so again, keep those things in mind. These themes are, are, are there, and, and we'll be unpacking that as we go, uh, go as we go along. Remember, our underlying goal for this series is to know our Savior more, not just the truths that that he that, that he is or, or the, who he is uh, theologically speaking. Right? We, there's a lot of stuff that we've already dealt with theologically. 
But our desire is to know our Savior more. And, and, and what is this, this truth, this reality that we are discovering about our Savior, at least starting from where our passage this morning, is that God is love. That God cares. That there is a reason as to why all of these things took place. A big question that we'll be answering this morning is, so what, right? All the, all the themes and all the, all the truths that we've discussed so far about Jesus being the Son of God, being equal with God in, in nature, in power, in authority, the, the big question there is, so what? Like, how does it affect me as a believer in Christ? Well, by God's grace, my desire starts showing you that beginning in our passage this morning. And my prayer is that you would come to know the heart of our Savior for you, that the Savior loves you. And has gone out of his way and has demonstrated the lengths of his love through his earthly ministry. So let's jump into our passage this morning and begin to unravel the heart of Christ demonstrated in our passage. Everyone say, jump for me. Amen. So our passage begins by saying, after this. I think it's important to note that this doesn't mean that this miracle takes place immediately after the events of chapter Five. If you've noticed so far in our study, John likes to make big leaps in time throughout the gospel. Unlike the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where the other gospels try to make a pretty consistent chronological retelling of the earthly ministry of Christ, John diverges from that. Again, because he has a specific purpose, uh, an intent for evangelism in his gospel, right? So, so where Matthew, Mark, and Luke will say something like, Jesus did this, and then he immediately went to this, John will simply say, after this, still sort of sticking to that, chron- that, that sense of chronology, but only to move on to the next story that further communicates his evangelistic message. And we know this to be true because as we looked at last week, the other Gospels record a whole bunch of other things in between this event, before this miracle. For example, there's the Sermon on the Mount. John the Baptist is beheaded. The, the, the disciples are sent out to preach the Gospel. All of this happens, but John doesn't record it at all because, again, his specific purpose is an evangelistic one. He's, he's writing very specifically to convince his readers to believe in Christ. Now, in addition to this, we know that there is a, a leap in time because uh, as our passage reads next, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. It doesn't say which miracles they saw or, or when they saw it. Clearly not just referring to the miracle of the, uh, of the man at, the, at Bethesda uh, on the healing, the healing that took place on the Sabbath in chapter 5. There were more miracles than that. John even says at the very last verse of his gospel, John 21 verse 25, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So John's gospel isn't definitive, meaning it doesn't contain everything that Jesus ever did. John's gospel is not definitive, it is distinctive. It presents Christ in a distinct light. And in verse 3, it says, Jesus went up to the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. The other gospels describes this miracle taking place shortly after the disciples returned from their sort of missionary journey. And Jesus takes them up on a mountainside to rest. We read in Mark chapter 6, verse 30, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. And he said to them, 
Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. This time, this time of the mountain was a retreat for Jesus and his disciples, a, a time to rest from ministry and take a break. So, by the way, vacations are biblical, right? Uh, naps are biblical. Remember when Jesus was napping on the back of a boat? Just saying to my wife, right? Who's She's not here. That's great. Uh, I'm, she lets me take a nap at night. So that's great. Uh, verse 4. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Again, another indicator of a passage in time. Chapter 5 begins with a feast, and now chapter 6 is taking place at another feast. The feast in chapter 5 is not identified, but it's either the Feast of Booths or another Passover, which means that this miracle takes place either 6 to 12 months further down the road, further down in time. Now beyond this verse, alluding to a passage in time, it also gives us a context to the target audience of this chapter, again, in John's gospel. As mentioned, this chapter connects a lot of dots between the Jews involved in this miracle and the Jews involved in the Exodus. Similar to the Passover in Exodus, there is a feast involving unleavened bread. In addition to that, after that feast, you know the story of Exodus, the, 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 the Israelites leave Egypt and they cross the Red Sea, right? In our passage in John chapter 6, Jesus walks on water. After that, the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness and they are given manna from heaven to eat. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. In fact, he brings up that same occasion in this passage. After that, the Israelites are given the law. Jesus says that he is the word of life. And again, as we mentioned, at the end of the Exodus story, only two Caleb and Joshua are left who are allowed to go into the promised land. At the end of chapter 6, only the disciples remain with Jesus. So there's a lot of connections there. A lot of parallels and allusions being made by John in this chapter to to the Exodus events. And that's primarily because Jesus is having to deal with the Jews who were so dogmatic about their Jewish faith. The laws, the customs, the traditions, similar to the Pharisees back in chapter 5, who studied God's word but did not believe God's word. They just simply followed the rules. These Jews in chapter 6 are of a similar mind. In the coming weeks, we'll see how they couldn't get past their traditions and customs, even when the Messiah that they had hoped for was standing right in front of them. In fact, this is going to become a a sort of a recurring theme in the Gospel of John. Jesus performs some great miracle, even explicitly declares that he is the Son of God, the Messiah himself, but the Jews do not believe him. And that just goes to show that, you know, when it comes to evangelism, it's not about signs and wonders. It's not about performing some miracle to get the attention of the lost. It's not about performing a miracle to draw people to God. Jesus fed over 5,000 people in a single day. And at the end of the day, those same people rejected him. As Jesus explains in this chapter, only the Father, only God can draw people to the Son. And only by his grace can people people believe and come to salvation. So now let's, let's go back to verse Five were passages. It says, lifting up his eyes and then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? As we mentioned last week the, the, in the other gospels, it points out that Jesus feels compassion for the crowd that he's he's ministering to. And out of that care, he desires to feed them. He, he will come back to this in verse 6. It says, He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would 
do? He's talking to, to Philip, right, and testing him. Jesus already knew what he would do to minister to these hungry people. But again, as the theme goes throughout all the Gospels, right, that he's inviting his disciples to participate in this miracle, to take responsibility of those who are in need. He wanted his disciples to have a heart of compassion as well. Then in verse 7, Philip answered him, 200 denarii, that's eight months' worth of wages, uh, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew Simon, uh, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they so, to so many? As we mentioned last week, Philip was more pragmatic, right? He was, he was, the, he was the numbers kind of guy. He, was, he did the math, pulled out his calculator, like, uh, Lord, we don't have enough money for this, right? Even if we work for eight months, they're not even going to get a little. Meanwhile, Andrew was a sarcastic guy. He was like, hey, Lord, we got some five loaves and two fishes. Will that be enough? It's like, obviously not, Andrew. Like, thanks for the help. Not, Right? But of course, that is the, the attitude of his disciples. One was pragmatic, the other was sarcastic. Neither passed the test. Neither of them had the faith that Jesus could even do anything to help these people. I think it's also important to note that these five barley loaves, which, and we're going to talk about this later on in our sermon, these five barley loaves were not a loaf of bread that you might think of as, or something that you might buy from the grocery stores, but were more like uh, flatbread or crackers or, or wafers. Remember, this, this, this miracle takes place at the Feast of Passover, which coincides with the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This was a time to commemorate the exodus of, uh, of the Israelites from Egypt, of course, and, and part of that remembrance was that they couldn't eat anything with leaven or, or yeast in it. That yeast is what makes bread rise, right? So hence why this, these barley loaves were more likely flat bread or, or crackers than actual bread. We'll come back to that. Now, I, I've heard a lot of preachers try to give some sort of meaning to the five loaves and the two fish, right? I read one commentary that said that the five the five loaves represent the first five books of the Bible, and the two fish, you know, the two tablets of the of the of the Ten Commandments, and they represent the or they represent the law and the prophets and all this symbolism, right? Well, there's no symbolism, I don't believe, behind the loaves and fish, at least not yet. I I think the gospel writers were just stating a fact, right? This is what all we had, right? The little that we had, dried dried fish and crackers were a common. Uh, packed lunch in those days, right? We, we don't uh, need to put any meaning behind them. They're just bread and fish. So verse 10 says, Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. I'm pretty sure the women and children sat down too, just because the men sat down as well. Again, the total amount of people, including women and children, would have been closer to 15,000 or 15 to 20,000. It's why John makes a note that there was a lot of grass for people to sit on. In verse 11, it says, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Again, the 12 baskets is not a sign, right? People start alluding it to, you know, the 12 tribes of Israel or the 12 disciples or, you know, or, you know how many kids my, my, you know, God wants me to have. Like, no, that's, 
That's not, there's no connection there, right? Uh, John is not big on numerical metaphors in his gospel. He's pretty straightforward and clear-cut when it comes to his metaphors as we continue to study. But what is John trying to communicate in our passage here? What, what is he trying to uh, demonstrate in our passage? Well, first and foremost, he's trying to demonstrate the power of Christ, the power of Christ. Again, this verse in, in verse 11 says, Jesus, then he took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted. Maybe you've heard people refer to this miracle as Jesus multiplying the loaves and fishes, and true enough, there is that. Jesus does increase the amount of food numerically, but in more recent times, I've actually heard and I guess in an effort to deconstruct this miracle and put some logic or reason to this event, people have suggested that Jesus made it so that those five loaves and two fish were enough for everyone to eat. Everyone sort of just broke a little piece off and then passed it on, and everybody, all fifteen to 20,000 people, was able to take a piece of that loaf or whatever. Although on the other hand, I heard someone suggest as well that some modern thinkers suggest that they, well, they actually had enough food. And what ended up happening is, is that you know, people sat down on the grass and you know, they saw this little boy share their food. And so they were inspired to share their own food. And everyone started sharing their food. And you know, everyone was happy. And everyone started singing, Kumbaya, my Lord. And you know, a real socialist moment, right? And that's why Jesus is a socialist, according to some commentators. Well, that's... That's not what happened in our passage. So let's, de- let's debunk this theory a little, right? Let's de- debunk these, these thoughts a little. One, as mentioned, there, was, there were barley crackers, not loaves of bread, as, you can, uh, as you, again, you would buy from a store. Really hard to split five crackers evenly between 20,000 people. Pretty straightforward. Have you ever tried to split a cracker, right? It's difficult. You get crumbs. Right? And the fish, right? they, they would have been sardines, uh, similar to the small sardines that you'd buy in a can. Remember, this was a little boy's packed lunch. right? It's oftentimes, my three-year-old son, Judah, he only runs on a juice box and a cheese stick. Right? He doesn't need much. Right? The same thing with this little kid. Right? He doesn't need much. It's, don't worry, we actually feed him. <laughs> right? But uh, my point is that this kid, right, he, he doesn't need much. He's just, this is just his packed lunch. This is lunch money. Right? And, and so... There's not enough to go around to everybody. And as per this, the, the theory that everybody just pulled out their own lunches and started sharing their meal, the Bible doesn't say that. It's very clear that they ate, with Jesus, they ate whatever Jesus gave to them. Not to mention a couple of verses down or a couple of paragraphs down, the people followed Jesus because they, get, they got free food. It says in John chapter 6, verse 26, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So it wasn't their own lunch that they were eating. They they were stalking Jesus because they got free food. They saw Jesus like, you know, Sunday afternoon at Costco, right? Free samples, right? All you can eat. Uh, but they wanted more food from Jesus. So, so sorry, this isn't a story about you know, sharing is caring and the human capacity to do good and provide for each other's needs. No, and to think that it is absolutely belittles what Christ demonstrates in our passage and the point that John is trying to make. What Christ is demonstrating here is his power, specifically his power to create something out of nothing. Remember John's bold statement about Jesus at the very beginning of his gospel, John chapter 1, verse 1 to 3. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Jesus was demonstrating His divine power to create something out of nothing, and John was testifying to that fact. Jesus took the five loaves and two fish, gave thanks for them, and then proceeded to create more from nothing. Could you imagine that, by the way? These would have been the best loaves and fishes that you've ever tasted. Remember the, the when, when Jesus turned water into wine, right? The MC of that wedding later said, this is the best wine that I ever tasted. I'm pretty sure it's the same thing with these loaves and fishes, right? Better than some five-star Michelin chef that could ever cook up or whatever, right? Like Jesus, if Jesus was on a cooking show, like those cooking competition shows, he'd win every single time, right? He'd be Iron Chef all the time. It's like, here's the secret ingredient. Nothing's a secret to me, right? I'm, I'm Jesus. <laughs> so this miracle serves to demonstrate, uh, by the way, right? He creates fish out of nothing. Who does that? By the, and, 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 and this isn't fallen fish, right? So I thought about this a lot, right? Because this isn't fall. You know the fish that you eat at the supermarket, right? That's cursed fish, right? That's, that's part of the fall of man, right? It's, it's cursed, it's evil. Jesus created fish out of nothing. This is fish that hasn't been fallen. Can you imagine how that must have tasted like, right? You could probably eat it like sashimi, right? You don't even need to cook it. This is perfect. It probably walks into your mouth like, you know, eat me, right? This is great fish. Sorry, I thought about this all week. So, uh, this miracle serves to demonstrate once again that Christ's power, that Christ is the Son of God and his divine power that is similar to God who is able to create something out of nothing. So the people had their fill. It says as much as they wanted. And even then there was leftovers. So verse 14 says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Remember, it was Passover. It's a, it's a time to celebrate what happened with Moses and the Israelites in Exodus. So naturally, they would have connected this miracle with Jesus and what Moses says back in the Old Testament. What did Moses say? We talked about this back in chapter 5. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Then in verse 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them in all, in all that I commanded him. Or command him. The people were connecting the dots that Jesus was, in fact, this prophet that Moses prophesied about. Remember the Pharisees at the end of chapter 5. Jesus brought up the same passage to them, but they missed it. At least these people got it, right? Jesus was indeed the prophet that Moses was talking about. So Jesus performs this great miracle and and everybody gets to eat and everyone recognizes that he's the prophet. It was truly a Passover miracle, but then it takes a turn. Verse 15, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The people explicitly declared that Jesus would be their king and were willing to force him onto the throne, meaning they were going to start a revolution right there and now, right? I mean, they had the numbers, right? 5,000 men, that is, a, that is a small army. They were going to march into the capital, dethrone King Herod, or, or, uh, uh, conquer Rome and anyone else who stood in the way and make Jesus their king. And it says Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Why is that? 
This was his moment, right? Again, this miracle next to the, the resurrection is the single largest miracle that Jesus performs that, that is witnessed by so many people. He won the people's favor. They wanted him to be their king. They had the numbers to, to start a revolution. If there was any time to start a change for Jesus to become king, it was at this moment, right? But Jesus said no. Why? John records this incident to communicate the purpose of Christ. The purpose of Christ. So the people were on the right track. They, they rightly connected the dots between the Passover and Moses' prophecy about the coming prophet, but they jumped the gun, so to speak, on making Jesus king. Just like everyone else in Jesus' day, they, they thought the Messiah would be, would be coming to overthrow Rome, establish a new Davidic kingdom, and usher in a new age of revelation from God. But as much as they connected those dots, they missed the point that Jesus didn't come to be a conquering king. He came to conquer sin. He didn't come to free his people from Rome. He came to free them from the curse of death. He didn't come to take the lives of the enemies of Israel. He came to give his own life even for his enemies. Jesus didn't come as a roaring lion. He came as a silent lamb to be sacrificed for the sins of the world. It was Passover and yet they missed it. They failed to connect the dots that similar to the lamb that the Israelites had to slay back in Egypt and whose blood had to be smeared on their doorposts so that the angel of death would pass them by. They failed to see that Jesus would be their sacrificial lamb, a lamb that would cover their sins so that they would not have to experience death. That's why Jesus withdrew. He wasn't functioning on the timeline of man or by man's will or for man's purposes or man's plans or man's preferences He was following the will and plan and purposes of the Father. Just a couple of verses later, Jesus even says in John chapter 6, verse 38, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John is demonstrating the obedience of Christ to the Father's will and how God's grander purpose for it far exceeds the purposes of man, even the preferences of man. John was communicating the purpose of Christ as a Passover lamb. So now the, the, the most important question of all comes, right? So what? <laughs> Pastor Ian, this was, you know, great and all, but, but so what? And I, I'm glad that you connect the dots and, and you know, you, you looked at all the, the, the context of that, but so what, you know? How does that affect my walk with Christ? And why is it so important that John communicates the power and the purpose of Christ through this miracle? Well, as I was preparing this sermon and studying this passage that same question struck me, really, right? Like, why is this so important, Lord? Like, why, 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 why does John tell this miracle this way? And more specifically, I, I was asking God, Lord, what do you want to tell to your people this, you know, this weekend? I don't get it. That's often my conversations with God. Like, I don't get it, Lord, right? And as I continued my study in this passage, the, the Holy Spirit highlighted something to me that I didn't see before, and I don't know if you caught it as well. I found something that John says that the other Gospels does not say, and I think it's key to answering this question of so what? Why is this miracle so important? So let's look at Mark chapter 6. We're going to compare some passages here. Look at Mark chapter 6, verse 41 with me. This is Mark's account of this miracle. It says, And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. 
In Luke chapter 9, verse 16, same account. And taking the five loaves and two fish, he looked up to heaven and said the blessing over them. Then he broke, he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. In Matthew chapter 14, verse 19, then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. That's the other gospel's accounts, right? Very consistent, very similar. But look what John says, verse 11 of our passage. Jesus then took the loaves and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish as much as they wanted. Did you catch the difference? In the other Gospels, it says that Jesus gave the food to the disciples to be distributed. Again, fitting sort of that theme that God is inviting us to care for those who are in need, but that's not what John is about. Again, remember his purpose in his Gospel is an evangelistic one. And by the way, this isn't contradicting each other, right? The, the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is not contradicting John. John's not trying to contradict them. He's not trying to spin a different story. I'm sure, it, it, I'm sure that what happened in the other Gospels also happened. And, and you know, Jesus also gave the, 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 the food to the, to the disciples to distribute among the, the masses, right? I mean, 20,000 people. Of course, he need help doing that. But what John is talking about is what he sees from his perspective. He sees Jesus personally distributing the food. He personally, Jesus personally went and distributed the loaves and fishes to those who were hungry. He personally went down the aisles of people and gave them food. He personally reached out his hands to satisfy the needs of those who were hungry. What's the message here, right? What's the message that God is trying to communicate to us this morning? The same way that Jesus personally took responsibility to feed these people, he personally takes responsibility for your salvation. All of this, right? Everything that Jesus is doing in this miracle, right? Again, the Passover, the, the, the feeding, all of it, right? And, and later on, when he connects the dots to him being the bread of life and to believe in him, all of it speaks of salvation. And all the dots connect to this point, that Jesus personally takes responsibility for our salvation. This is the passion of Christ. We already discussed how in the other Gospels, Jesus' motivation for performing this miracle was compassion. He, he was moved to act when he saw the people in need. He says in Mark that he saw them like a sheep without a shepherd. Now, the result of that compassion is, is that according to John, Jesus himself personally ministers to the needs of the people. Now, as we said, though, the heart of compassion is the same sentiment that God feels when he looks at us sinners. And that act of personally addressing the need of the individual is what Christ does in regards to our own salvation. The same way that Jesus personally took responsibility for those in need of food, he personally takes responsibility for those in need of salvation, namely us. We'll look at this more in depth in a couple of weeks. But listen to what Jesus says later to the same people. John chapter 6, verse 37, he says, All that the Father gives me, talking about the people that the Father brings to him for salvation, will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's very personal. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. 
That's very personal. That describes someone who personally and actively takes the role of Savior in our lives. Listen, the display of Christ's power, of Christ's purpose, all of it is underscored by his passion, by his compassion for the sinner, his love for us, his personal responsibility to save those who would believe. Now, as believers, we can still struggle with a lot of sin and doubts and fears and I believe a genuine child of God desires to be free from those things. Have you ever considered that our Savior, Jesus Christ, desires to save you, longs to save you, to free you from those struggles, and in fact has taken responsibility to save you by dying on the cross for your sin and by rising from the grave to ensure you to ha- that you would rise one day as well. And he's now in glory preparing a place for you. Has it ever occurred to you that Christ's desire to save you is more than your own desire to be saved? I mean, in our passage, Jesus goes out of his way to personally feed those who would eventually reject him. How much more does he do for those whom the Father is drawing to him? As we just read, Jesus' personal mission is to ensure that he does not lose any that the Father gives him. And that he will raise them up on the last day. Here's here's the point, brothers and sisters. Maybe I I was thinking about this throughout this week too, and maybe this is exactly how I was feeling as well. Maybe some of you feel feel spiritually exhausted in your walk with the Lord. Maybe some of you have been struggling in sin. Maybe some of you have lost hope as a result of the circumstances that you face. Maybe some of you have been overcome by much fear and doubt in your walk with God. And I know I have, right? Again, I feel like this, is, this has been a commentary of, of, of how my heart has been. And for me personally, there's been this great hunger to, to know God more, to meet with the Lord more. But I keep thinking to myself, man, I, I don't have the time. I don't have the energy but what I have been realizing in my, my own devotions and from our passage here, that our loving Father, that our Savior, desires to meet with us more than we ever wanted to meet with Him. The reminder for us this morning is that we have a Savior who is in the trenches with us, who is actively working to bring us peace and hope, to free us from doubts and fears, to give grace when we can no longer endure, and to pull us out of those dark, sinful places that we often wander into. The reminder for us this morning is that we have a Savior who loves us and accepts us despite our unbelief, our our sinfulness, our insecurities. We have a Savior who actively works to save us, to redeem us. We have a personal Savior, not that we have made him our own, but that he makes us his own. Listen, Christ is passionate about your salvation because he is passionate about you. Has that ever occurred to your mind? You know, oftentimes I think we're always looking at it from the human vantage point, like, you know, what do I need to do to be saved? Right? What do I need to do to maintain my relationship with God and, and to grow deeper in my walk with God? Have you ever thought that, you know, God's the initiator, that he's the pursuer. As Hebrews says, that he is the author and perfecter of our faith. Have you ever thought that 
well, God's the one who's pursuing us. Uh, whenever we think that our salvation and our relationship with the Savior is in our hands, that we can do, we, that we can do anything to ever de- derail it, remember this passage. Remember that it was not us who came to Christ, but Christ who came to us. And so maybe this morning, some of you are in a similar boat. Maybe some of you this morning are, are, are sort of discouraged with your own walk with God and how it's been. Maybe because of your lack of time, maybe because of your circumstances, maybe because of the doubts and fears that you've been struggling with, maybe because of the sin in your life. You feel unworthy even in your relationship with God. But again, the reminder for us this morning is that we have a personal Savior, a Savior who comes to us, a Savior who delights in us, a Savior who has accepted us despite everything that we have ever done and everything bad that we could ever do. We have a Savior that loves us. And to the unbeliever, the invitation is the same. It's the gospel that we preach and we stand for. That a holy God, a God that is is so good, sent his son to die on our behalf because of our sins. A God who showed us compassion by sending his son to die on a cross, a death that we should have died for a payment that we should have paid. And a Savior who loved us enough to rise from the grave so that he can promise us hope and a life after death. The invitation is the same, to put your faith in him. For whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, to put your faith in the Savior who pursues us. To throw your hands in the air and say, you know, God, there's nothing I can do to, 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 to save myself, to secure this relationship with you. I'm throwing my hands in the air, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Put your faith in him. Put your faith in the Savior who comes to us, who takes personal responsibility for our salvation. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we are reminded And we are convicted, Lord God, of your great love for us. Though, God, we were still sinners, lost in our sin, or we were still struggling in doubts and fears, you are a God who loves us and pursues us. And that great pursuit is all the more exemplified by you sending your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, forgive us for the times that we take advantage of your grace or we think that it's by our it's by our strength or by our willpower that we will secure our relationship with you lord god humble us remove our ego lord god and help us see and recognize that it is you it is all in your hands It is all by your grace and your mercy. There is nothing that we have done to ever merit, O Lord, your love, yet you've loved us anyways. Not some choice, not some 
act or a deed, not some potential that we could ever be, that you chose to love us, Lord. You just really loved us. So I pray, O Lord, that you would return to us the joy of our salvation. I pray, O Lord, that you would return to us a delight in your word, in your presence, in our relationship with you. And for the weary sister or the discouraged brother, I pray, O God, that you would reignite in them a passion for you. That you, first and foremost, that God, you would remind them of your great love for them. That God, that you are even today pursuing them. That even today you are desiring to grow deeper in relationship with them. That God, your work of salvation did not just stop at the cross and in the grave. That even today, you are a personal God, a God that is in the trenches, a God that is in our struggles, a God that is in our heartbreaks, a God that is in our loneliness. You are a God in our pain. That just as Christ demonstrated compassion and love and care to these hungry people, that your heart yearns and breaks even for us in our spiritual needs. As much as in the physical needs, that God, your, your heart breaks for us. As you see us in our sin. You see us in our doubts and fears. And just as you, Lord, took responsibility for those who were in need in our passage and in the story, Lord God, you take responsibility for us. You call us your own. We are your possession. Thank you that you have loved us so much with such an everlasting love, with a great love. Pray, Father, that we would desire to love you in return, to put you first in return, to abide in your love. God, help us in this. We know that we have nothing in us to do this. It's all by your grace and all by your spirit. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.